Welcome to Grab Life Big. Grab Life Big. The exclusive podcast for healthy, wealthy, generous men who choose to lead epic life. Or as a few of us say, badass rich guys who do epic shit. And now, your host, Pat Hybin. Okay, go Bundes Brothers, it's time to grab life big and put your money where your mouth is and get signed up for some bucket list adventures in 2017. Here's the BLR, Bucket List Rundown. Indeed, Mr. Smead, the first thing we got going up is Snowwater, British Columbia, hella skiing. The guys that went last year said it was un. Freaking real. Unreal. March 15th to 20th, Snowwater, British Columbia. Then we got a champions only couples trip. If you are a champion, which by the way is 5 million net worth. Is it five? Yeah, I believe. 5 million net worth above. Napa Valley with your wife. Napa Valley wine tasting with your wife. April 20th, 23rd. Then what I got, uh, I also got another champion self-reliance trip, which is uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail at the very last uh, five or six days of it, Mount Katahdin. That's in Bangor, Maine on June 7th through the 11th. Then we got August 17th to 22nd, we got a special Fambundance Jackson Hole, Wyoming solar eclipse. Bring your kids and let them learn about the solar system. More specifically, the solar eclipse that's going to take place and uh, they may never see it again. You may never see it again in your lifetime. Solar eclipse is going to happen on Jackson Hole, August 17th to 22nd. Then we have South Africa, baby. Yes, South Africa. Man, that is bucket list item crazy. You got like seven or six or seven bucket list items on there. Swimming with the sharks. Of course, safari. The volunteering in, in Cape Town, in the ghettos of Cape Town. Just incredible trip planned on that. Uh, September 24th through October 4th. And we're working on a, a the end part of that, adding a uh, couples. If you want to have your wife fly down or your girlfriend fly down for the end part of that and a little special thing on the end, we got that working too. And then, of course, we got the GoBundance Elite Couples Trip in Placencia, Belize, in uh, a really nice, uh, probably a key, right, uh, off of Belize, in Belize, an amazing couple's trip that I, I heard amazing things. A lot of people last year said it was the best trip they've ever been on. So that is uh, November 4th through 11th. Any of these you want to sign up for, you know, reach out to Melanie and just let Melanie know, you know, you're in and she'll collect your money or uh, shoot you in the right direction. So uh, thanks, guys, and uh, enjoy the show. Grab Life Big. Okay, Grab Life Big, Abundance Brothers. We have a great guest today coming from Montreal, Canada. I got Mr. Norm Gordon on the line, and uh, we are going to get into some deep abundance questions and answers and i'm excited for this so norm welcome to grab life big oh how you doing pat hey norm why don't you give us like your life story in five minutes give us a five minute rundown from the day you were born till today so we can get to know you 
Well, okay. I was born in Montreal, Canada. Uh, grew up like every regular kid. I like to play hockey, and I did a lot of sports. I played football and baseball and basketball and floor hockey. And, you know, I was good at math, but I wasn't real good in school. I wasn't bad in school either. Went to McGill University. I started off in electrical engineering, and I changed to architecture, and then I changed to computer science, and finally got my degree in uh, business management and with a major in computers and systems. And the reason I was changing uh, is like I was not, you know, I didn't have like any game plan in place, you know. I tried different things, like I liked electronics, so I thought electrical engineering, but, you know, all of the math and physics and this, I didn't take it that seriously when I was a college student until probably I was about 19 or 20. Then I started to get more serious. Uh, and computers seemed to come to me uh, pretty easily. Uh, my first job was with IBM. Interestingly, I did not get a job in you know, software development or anything. Uh, I was hired by IBM, which I was tickled pink at the time, but they put me in sales. But they had this incredible sales training program that lasted like the better part of a year. And I took to it. But when I finally went on territory, and when going on territory means you stop getting a salary and you're now on commission only, I got off to a running start, but then I, it just fizzled, like I wasn't doing very much. And I was in this sort of turning point in my life where I'm saying, like, do I quit? Which I don't really like the idea of quitting, but I wasn't making any money because I wasn't making sales. But I stopped making sales calls the way I did every day because it wasn't producing results. And, you know, if you continue to do the things that you're doing, you're going to continue to get the results you've been getting, which were very poor at that point. Yeah. Uh, it was November, and I was like 18% of quota. Damn. So I said, like, you know, I'm going to stop just running around in circles and start thinking a little bit. And I would just sit at my desk and think, what am I going to do? How am I going to pull this off? And then finally an idea came to me, like I was looking at the internal mail. They didn't have email in those days. It was the 1970s. And I noticed a guy who was in my training program from Kansas City, Kansas, of all places. And he was like something like 400% of quota. And I didn't remember him being particularly uh, bright. Now, let me put it this way. The people at IBM were all smart cookies. But, you know, they're smart and they're smarter and they're smartest. He was just smart, you know, bottom of the barrel at IBM, right? Uh, so I, I figured, you know what, I'm going to just call him and ask him. Let's see what he tells me. And he tells me that the guy at the next desk to his was the top sales performer in the whole company, something like 2,000% of quota, year after year after year. And he explained me step by step exactly how it was done. So I got to work and I made quota that year. In one month, I made my whole year's quota. The following year, I started in January, and I was 800% the quota. And one of the top performers in all of Canada. You know, and I'd asked him during the call, like, why don't you, uh, you know, tell this to all the reps at IBM? He says, you're the only one who's ever asked. 
Jeez, and, and so you were selling computers, is that right? Yeah, like the computers we were selling today in those days were not even equal to your cell phone. Just giant, and, yeah. Well, they weren't that big. They were, you know, like the size of a desk, let's say. Yeah, and then uh, eventually you got into real estate. Well, three years at IBM, and then I decided to to do my own business because even though I was selling like millions of dollars worth of equipment, I was making like 35K a year in commission. And I thought, you know, plus expenses, I thought I could do as well or better on my own. And if I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to keep it up at IBM. So I, I went into my own data processing company and I did well for a few years. When I say I did well, I made a living. I, I wasn't making millions. Uh, but, you know, by then I was, uh, I think I was engaged or married or about to get engaged or married. And I had an apartment and a car and, you know, nice suits and all that for going to work every day. But I was just getting by. And in the data processing company, I was also getting by, like doing okay, but nothing uh, go abundancy about it, you know, just making you, a living. You were grabbing life small. No, <laughs> I was. Uh, let's say I was hanging on to life. <laughs> okay, jeez, <laughs> taking a step lower than that. Uh, but I, I was, I wasn't unhappy. I was just uh, like you know. One of the things I believe is success is the journey. It's not the destination. Mm. I mean, now that I have the money, uh, I can tell you, just sitting on a pile of cash does not make you happy. What's fun is playing the game. Mm. Preach, brother. You know, so you had this little company, right? It was it was not floating your boat. It really wasn't scratching any itches for you. You just no, you just kind of went I, in there, but because you used to be a computer salesperson, and you say, hey, why don't I just open my own computer biz? It was a data processing company. I liked it because I got to do the programming. I was the chief programmer. I had a little bit of a staff. I also did all the sales. Uh, it was. I found it hard to hire good salespeople, and anyways, I was I was okay with it, but I was start. You know, I was always looking to do better. So, for example, uh, don't get me wrong. While I wasn't making a lot of money, I was making a decent living. I was feeding my family, and I was striving, and that was okay. I wasn't unhappy, uh, but I was always looking for more. So one of the things I used to do is buy things like Entrepreneur Magazine, and I'd cut out all the ads at the back and say, you know, everything in those days was 10 bucks. Send me 10 bucks, and I'll tell you this, or I'll tell you that. I'll teach you how to get rich or whatever. And I would send them out by the dozen. And I realized a lot of guys were scamming me and ripping me off. That's fine. I became more sophisticated in spotting the scams by getting scammed, right? But my rationale was if I sent out a hundred of these things at 10 bucks each, that would be a thousand bucks. If one of them paid out, the, the payout would be like a million times or, or a hundred, uh, you know, I wasn't worried about getting ripped off for a $10 bill. Like you can't worry about taking a little hit here or there when you're looking to find the answers. Anyway, some of the books, one of them in particular was a tremendous book called How to Wake Up the Financial Genius Inside of You. Mm. And it taught me real estate. It was all about how to do real estate deals. And it was like a very well-written book. 
sort of a give back type book. Like this was a guy married with five kids, a stockbroker who lost his job and had a, a family and a mortgage and a Mormon in Utah, uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. And he doesn't know what to do, but he remembers one of his clients would play the stock market, you know, 50,000 plus, 50,000 minus was a peanut to him, it seemed. So he figured he had another source of income. He went to the guy and it was real estate. And the guy taught him all the basics of real estate. Just like the guy at IBM taught you. And so you got this gig. Uh, you started buying houses one at a time. Now you own 653 apartments. Is this right? I didn't, I didn't do it one at a time. 653 doors? Yes, I own 653 today. Now, when you say 653 doors, how many apartment buildings does Norm Gordon own? When you say 653 doors, is that okay. one giant and building? No, I did not start one at a time. Like, you know, like I said, the book taught me this guy went, became a millionaire within three years. And I just filed it in my mental notes for how I got into real estate is a friend of mine lost his job, came to me and asked me what to do. And, you know, my first thought was, well, get another job. But then he says, yeah, but they downsized me just to save payroll and I didn't do anything wrong. I want, you know, you're in business for yourself. You're not going to downsize yourself. And I go, yeah, but I'm like an expert in computers, IBM background, a degree. I used to teach at McGill. You know, you can't just go into computers like that. He says, well, are there other businesses? And I remembered the real estate book and I gave him this simple business plan. I had a, a big office with lots of individual rooms, so I gave him one of my offices, no overhead, uh, for free. So, you know, he had the desk, the chair, the phone, intercom, PA, the whole deal. Uh, and then I gave him the book to read, which took a couple of days, and I said, go out and make a deal. And if you find a deal, you're getting unemployment insurance for six months, you're off and running. And if you don't, get a job. Five and a half months go by zero. And I decided to take the final two weeks off of my job to help him out. It took me one day. We made our first deal. It was a 36-unit apartment building. In the first day? In the first day. Like, I walked into a, a real estate office uh, to meet an agent. And what I said to the guy was, I'm here to buy an apartment building. I'd like something between 20 to 50 units. Anything that makes sense, I want to close the deal. Just show me something that makes sense. So they would show me listings, uh, and I was very quick with numbers. I didn't need a PC in those days. Uh, I could just look at the numbers, and in my head, I figured it out. And in a minute, I would throw the listing back at the guy, and i say, this doesn't make any sense at all. Like, show me something that makes sense, and we'll close the deal. And this goes on for about 10 minutes, and the guy says, you know, Norm, I know your type. I go, really? What's my type? Because I don't know, so we'll both know. He says, oh, you're the type of guy that will analyze a bunch of listings and eventually you'll make an offer. But you see, the vendor is going to make a counter offer. And when you see that counter offer, you're going to go, ah, he didn't take my offer. I'm out of here. You're never going to buy a building. I go, really? Okay. So we're wasting our time here. I'm leaving. Uh, thank you for uh, that advice. I go to another agent, but this time... When I'm in the place, I'm looking around, and I see they have a sales leader board. So I see the guy at the top of the board. I figure he's the best agent. 
His name was Robert uh, something. So I go to the receptionist. I say, uh, tell Bobby Norm's here to see him. Calls up the agent, and I give him the same line. I'd like to buy an apartment building today, something in the 20 to 50 unit range. Anything that makes sense, I'm going to close the deal with you today. The same exercise goes by. One of the listings that I toss back at him, he tosses it back to me, and he says, take a look at the price per unit. And I immediately understood that the reason the other numbers didn't fall in line was because the rents were exceedingly low, and this was an opportunity to make money. We closed the deal that day. Uh, You know, there was a due diligence period and blah, blah, blah. That was my first building. 36 units, me and my friend. A year into it, I asked him, so, and we had a plan that if we just follow this plan, we were both going to be millionaires within about five years. And we were never behind plan. This was amazing that, you know, a lot of these uh, business plans are smoke and mirrors and you never achieve the goal. Here we were ahead from day one and never fell behind schedule. Yet a year in, I'm asking, how's it going? And he's going, "Eh, I don't know if I like this so much. So I said, really? I'm loving it. I'm going to buy you out then. He said, sure. You know, and he got some money and paid off his house and had a free home at this point, uh, like a paid-for home. I ran with this and made 400000 in three years. Understand, going into that deal, my net worth was twenty five k. Okay. So I, I jumped from twenty five k to four hundred in nice. three years. And I figured I was kind of lucky. So I went back to my computer business, but I started attending seminars, like real estate seminars, because now I knew something about real estate, right? Having one deal under my belt. And I met someone in one of these seminars who said, you know what, let's be partners. And at first I thought this was another, uh, you know, one of what I call the let's do lunch crowd. You know, people you meet at seminars or what have you, and you hit it off with them and everything's really hunky dory. And they say, let's do lunch sometime, but you never hear from them again. <laughs> I call those people the let's do lunch crowd. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then there's a million of them out there, especially nowadays. There's a lot of wannabes. So, but this person calls me back about three months later. It was a woman. And she goes, uh, I have a deal on Park Avenue. This is a street in Montreal. Uh, do you want to go see it? And I go, no, I want to see the numbers first before I waste time and gas. You know, she faxes me the numbers. The numbers were interesting. I went to see the building. We bought the building. That was in 1991. I still own that property. I Um, bought her out over the years. How many units? It was 18 units. And on this little 18 unit building, I've made over $3 million. What? What's it worth? It's worth about $3 million today, and it's fully paid for. Now, how the hell is an 18-unit building worth $3 million? In it, this is Montreal, Canada. Is that what you, an eight? I mean, that's, a, that's an expensive per-unit building. Well, yeah. It's it's yeah. like uh, 160000 a unit. That's not a lot for what, uh, what type of rents? Minute. What type of rents do you get for that thing? 1400 a month. Okay. This is downtown Montreal, so... That, that's an unusual building in our area. Probably the price per unit is about 60% higher than an average unit. Yeah, you ain't kidding. But, but this is like, like the garbage room in the basement is made of granite. 
I mean, every the the laundry room where people go do their laundry is made of marble. So it's I high mean, end. It's, it's a high end building in downtown Montreal. I'm saying it's not an average building. My average building in Montreal would go for about a hundred k a unit. Uh, 160 is special. Plus, you know, the tenants have to pay their own heating and what have you. Mm. And, and it's very fancy, you know, granite counters and hardwood cabinets and bathrooms the size of bedrooms, you know. Wow. So, so you, you did 36, you did 18, and then how many would you say, uh, you know, do you have, how many separate buildings would you say you have? I think I have nine properties, like... Because some of them are complexes. It's like three or four buildings together that right, are either right, attached yeah. or semi-attached. Uh, basically, I still have that 18 unit. Uh, the 36 I sold. Uh, I have a 47 in one part of Montreal, a 60, a 64, uh, one that's 65, 160 units, 239 units. These are the different complexes. Uh, if you add them all up, I think it comes to 653. I also used to have some in Ontario, like in Ottawa and in Toronto, but we've sold those. Two of them were towers, like, uh, you know, these 10, 20 story buildings. Really? Yeah. We made a few million dollars on each one of those deals. Right now, the 653 units, that's like, you know, 50, 60 million dollars worth of real estate. And now, obviously, it, it's not fully paid for, but, you know, it's not all uh, financed either. Yeah, yeah. What uh, What's your loan to value on that? It's in the 60% range. Okay. So that's great. So, you know, 40% of $50 million, right, is know, uh, about $20 million. Yeah. yeah, and I have a partner, so I, probably my share is like a little over 10 Because we own different percent. Like, we're not exactly 50-50 on every deal. So what is the horizontal income, right? The, the sideways income that you get paid, if you just want to, you know, do nothing this month, uh, what's the sideways horizontal income you get from your $10 million in equity in, the, in these, you know, 653 units? Well, I would explain it. it's a little more complex than that. Like we, I pull out my share uh, about 17000 a month is my check. So that's, I guess, let's see, uh, it's 204 a year, roughly. So 204 a year I use as living expenses. In addition, you know, we're paying off, like we're paying $1.2 million a month. Uh, sorry, uh, the numbers are a little complicated. 100 now. grand a month in principle. A little more than that. We're probably paying off. Uh, just let me think a second. Probably, yeah, well over a hundred grand a month in principle. Uh, so I guess that would count as yeah, that would count. I mean, that'd be another fifty. That's fascinating. So you're essentially saving fifty grand a month each, right? Norm saves fifty thousand a month, and then takes seventeen thousand for himself. So everybody should listen to this. This is this is a great ratio. I mean, you're taking seventeen thousand. That's your spending money. But then you're saving fifty. So at the end of the day, you're spending about two oh four, but then you're saving six hundred thousand personally every year. And that's not including the fact that the buildings go up in value. Because I would say they probably go up in value about another five, six hundred thousand a year. Like I fill out this sort of worksheet 
about three, four times a year. You know, I update it, I guess I would say, three, four times a year to see how I'm doing. And I'm roughly making about an extra million or two a year, uh, depending on... What, what you would know, you say your net worth is right now? Between 10 and 12 million. Okay, so it's all in equity in these 653 units. No, I've got about 5 million in cash. Like, you know, because I don't spend a whole 200000 well, you, you Yeah, you got $10 million in the buildings and then $5 million in cash, so you, you probably have a net worth of fifteen. The reason I, I value the buildings less because there's something called a contingent liability. If I ever sell the building, which, you know, sometimes we do sell a building, uh, you got to pay tax. So if you've got, let's say, a million-dollar profit in a building – after tax, that might only be seven hundred and fifty grand, right? And right. if I've taken if I've taken depreciation along the way, I have to recapture it, so the tax bite will be even higher. So I figure of my let's say it's eleven million to take an average number, five million of it's in cash, six million would be the after tax uh, equity in the properties. The okay. before tax equity in the properties would be higher. But you cannot realize that equity without paying taxes, other than refinancing the properties, because that's one of the re reasons I have so much cash, is we've refinanced properties, not that I needed the money, but I figure it's good to have cash in the hopper for, you know, sometimes uh, for the next deal. Makes sense. So where do you want to be in 10 years? <laughs> Alive, happy, and kicking. <laughs> uh, that's your main goal. You know, I like I, I like what I do every day. So, like, you know, I could retire and have enough money for the rest of my life. But why? You know, I like the game. Uh, you know, I have some certain responsibilities and you got to do some work. But I've gotten used to doing it and I like doing it, you know. So... Uh, I'm not saying that everything is, is fun in games... But it is, it's, it's a great way to spend your time. And plus, you know, I've observed a lot of people over the years who've retired. And you know what? There was a four-year period or five-year period when I was in my 40s where I, I kind of retired. I thought it was cool to retire at 40. Uh, and after five years of, of playing around and playing cards and stuff like that, uh, I realize it's not a way to live life. You know, if you have the ability uh, to, to, to live life big or to, to be good at something, it's almost a sin to waste that ability. And I clearly had some sort of talent. Uh, I don't know if I could put my finger on it. Like, you know, to say I'm good at math, like, you know, so what? But when I applied it to real estate... I was obviously at least okay at it, if not very good. So to waste that talent, uh, no, it, it didn't seem right. And I like playing the game. You know, now we've actually shifted gears. I've been in this sort of buy and hold game for, for about 25, 30 years now. And recently we've decided that, it, you know, I've sort of analyzed where I've made money. And I'll give you one example of what I'm talking about. Okay. We we bought a building in 2006, it was. 
by 2008, the building was up a million dollars in value. Since then, it's been Jeez. another nine, nine years, and we've made another million in nine years. But I started to realize that we made most of our money, like half of that money was made in the first 18 months. Mm -hmm. And then it took another 10 years to double what we did the first 18 months. Mm -hmm. So what I'm thinking is we have a sort of team and system to go into a building, turn it around, get it running smoothly. And that's a good time to sell the building. Sure. Because there's, we maximize there's a business our model for everything. It's called a flip, you know, and people flip houses and they flip buildings. So, yeah. Yeah, like our flip cycle is probably two years. So it's not like flip, like buy it in January, sell it in March, but it's buy it in 2017 and sell it in 2019. And we can make millions on that. Like we recently bought a complex. It's 160 units in Montreal. It's a concrete complex. We paid $14 million for it. It's only four months since we bought it. We could probably sell it today for sixteen, But I've targeted $19 million, And I figured it'll take us another year or so, maybe 18 months, to get it to that $19 million range. So that'll be like roughly two years to make $5 bucks. Now, we can hold on to that building, and over the next 20 years, we probably make another $20 million. But if you figure it out, Maybe. we're making... Well, because what happens is over that time, in 25 years, the building will double in value. Well, so you it'll don't, be it could, yeah. And it probably it, will. That's a long time. But, you know, a lot of people out there are saying, you know, Canada's doomed. I mean, Montreal... Um, Vancouver, where we just were in Whistler, I mean, absolute peak levels of uh, appreciation, just just pure bubble-esque. Are you saying you don't buy any of that? Like you, you, well, you think it's going to, you think it's going to continue to ascend? I'll, I'll tell you what my rationale is. First of all, if Montreal was in the USA, it would be the fourth largest city in the United States. There's only three cities in all of the USA bigger than Montreal. New York, Chicago, and, uh, and Los Angeles. So it's not exactly a hick town, number one. Number two, when I'm telling you it, we're paying an average of $100,000 a unit for concrete apartment buildings, and because of the cold winters here, the buildings are built. You know, these are not little uh, clapboard houses. Uh, these are concrete and steel apartment buildings. Uh, you cannot build something for less than double that today. So even though it's selling for 100K a unit, it's still selling for half of what the reconstruction costs are, and people are gonna need a place to live. So there's still a lot of upside potential. The reason the prices are so low is because of rent controls have kept the value of buildings to an artificially low value. <laughs> you have rent control? Yep. In all of Montreal? Yep, in all of Quebec. How does that work? What do you, what does that mean? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, I know I understand rent control, but like, how much is it controlled? I mean, you're getting fourteen hundred a unit um, on on let's say this eighteen unit that's quite polished. Um, what if without rent control? What do you think you would get? Well, okay. First of all, okay, I understand what you're asking now. Rent control in Montreal is this. You can ask whatever you want for rent, but if the tenant refuses, you can't tell him to move. 
you then have to apply to the tribunal, to the rent, the rental board, and ask them to to set the rent between you two. Uh, and they have a formula, and the formula is published. So based on the numbers of the building, they're going to give you uh, a percentage, and it's usually like one or two percent. So it it's kind of open market, but if you're unreasonable. So let's say, for example, I did the numbers on a building and say an average apartment in Montreal rents 1,400. These are special units. Forget that building. Uh, an average two-bedroom apartment would rent for 825 or 850 a month. Okay. Right? And that includes heat and hot water and what have you. Uh, so let's say I wanted to raise the rent from eight and a quarter to 850. Okay. So $25 is roughly 3%. Yes. I know that the rental board would allow probably 10 or $11. So I might ask for 25 and surprisingly a large number of people would just accept it if you're doing a good job on the building. But then there's ones who would come to you and say, no, uh, that's too much. I don't want to pay $25. Uh, and you can't just say to them, well, if you don't like it, leave because they don't have to leave. They they got the right to stay and not pay the twenty five. So the government the government is set up with 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 uh, must be a massive amount of employees that sit there and help regulate and help uh, pass no, judgment on where where the rent should be for each individual person that complains. Well, here's the point: if you're going to be successful. You don't want to be running to the rental board to get your rent increases. Like of the 653 units we have, I haven't been to the rental board in 10 years for that type of thing. Why? Because if a guy says no, okay, you negotiate. You know, somebody, you you offer to buy a guy's building for a million dollars and he says, no, I want a million three. You don't just run away. Mm -hmm. You say, well, let's discuss it. And you negotiate, and you know what negotiation is. Yeah. So if, if I ask for twenty-five, yeah. So let's say he says ten. There's a lot you can say to the person to uh, to get the negotiation going. If you want me to get into technique, I can, or we could move on. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's move on to some of the pillars, uh, Norm. So uh, let's look at Norm Gordon. Right there's, uh, you know, we have six pillars that go: abundance, age-defying health. Horizontal income, which you have a very decent amount of horizontal income. Genuine contribution. I know you're a philanthropist as well. Incredible relationships, extreme accountability, and bucket list adventures. Now, now of these six, Norm, which one of these does Norm Gordon absolutely suck at? Probably adventure. And um, Because my idea of fun is I love playing cards. I play poker. I play bridge. Poker is about money, but it's also a psychology game. And bridge, there's no money involved in bridge. Bridge is simply uh, a mental exercise to keep your mind sharp. Uh, and it's important because as you get older, it's not just your physical health goes down if you don't exercise. Your mental health goes down if you're not constantly challenging your brain. And bridge is a great game. It's fun. I mean, I could play bridge all day long. There was a time, I told you, when I was 40 years old, that I retired from work completely, well, almost completely. I still owned about, I don't know, 60 units. But for me, that was like a hobby. Uh, 
and I played bridge full time. I was on the national. Uh, I competed in the world championships. Uh, it w- it was fun to play. I could play ten hours a day. I might go to bed with a headache, but I'd wake up the next day and do it again. So, and I did this like for a year, seven days a week. So it was incredible. Traveled so can, all over. The so tournament. you're you're cool with being low on the bucket list adventure. So to you, a bucket list item is uh, being able to play uh, bridge for three days straight. Well, a bucket list adventure might be to play in the world championships. There you as go. As opposed to play at the local club level. Is that one you know, there, for you? There's club level. There's sectional, regional, national, North American, and world championships. So the higher up the ladder you go, the more exciting it is. I mean, it's probably a lot more fun to play in the Super Bowl than in a high school football game. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's great. Yeah. That that that's awesome. Okay, so Norm, think about this for a minute. What was the most brilliant day of your life? Wow, I've had so many things to be grateful for. It's hard to pick one. I don't know, making 800% a quota at IBM. Oh, you want to know an amazing thing? I think I got in touch with with God one day. Mm, tell me. Uh, uh, this was amazing. I was 21 years old in university. I still had nine credits to go. It was June. And, you know, I was supposed to graduate in June, but I'd fallen behind from playing around as a kid and... Uh, you know, I thought to myself, what's the big deal? I'll graduate in September instead of June, right? So what? Uh, my parents, who were both Holocaust survivors, get invited to a convocation, which was at Place des Arts, which is a big fancy hall in in Montreal. And I didn't know that that's where convocation was going to be, but that's I mean, where McGill had it. Convocation is, is, is where what? you get... Where you get your graduation certificate, you know, okay. with the square hats on your head, the mortar boards. So your parents and, were invited to this uh, because they were Holocaust survivors? No, like all the parents of the graduating class, but I wasn't going to graduate. Oh, I, I see. Gradu- so they got an invitation and and they thought you were graduating and you weren't. And I was not going to graduate in June. I wasn't graduating till September. And they tell all their friends how their son is going to be graduating in four days. Oh, my goodness. Okay, and I'm I'm in the classes like you know like I'm taking these last nine credits, which is three half courses, <laughs> uh, but they don't complete until later in the summer, and my graduation will only be in September. Mm. And I'm thinking, how the hell am I going to pull this off? And I have no ideas whatsoever. Okay, like it seems impossible. So I at just at one point I sort of look skywards. And I, and like, I say a little prayer. I said, like, please, Lord, if there was any way that I can pull this off to make my parents happy, put the idea in my head, because I really cannot think of anything on my own. And would you believe it? The idea just popped in my head like that. And I'm thinking to myself, my gosh, it's like God responded. What do you think God's going to do? Send you an email or call you up on your phone? Mm. I mean, if if God was going to talk to you, how would he talk to you? And I think the answer is he would put an idea in your head. Sure. That you wouldn't otherwise. Right, yeah, uh, absolutely. 
And, you know, it's a long story, so I won't get into it now. But let me tell you, I graduated three days later. So it wasn't like Morgan Freeman uh, uh, gave you the answer, right? Uh, you, it just popped into your head and, and how you were going to do it. And what'd you do? I mean, you got to tell me. <laughs> I'm worried about time constraint, but I'll try to make this as quick as possible. The first thing I did, one of the courses was a six credit course. And I'm looking at the teacher and I decide, you know what, I'm going to go see her after class. I go to see her and amazingly, she has this giant champion spark plug poster on her door and I was into motors and car engines in those days so I start talking to her about car engines and to build some rapport and it becomes clear to me she's clueless so I go you don't know the first thing about engines why would you put a spark plug on your door a whole like a six-foot poster she goes I just moved in here it was on the door when I came in so much for building rapport So I said, okay, let me get to the point. You know, I tell her, my parents, Holocaust survivors, I need to graduate in three days. Uh, Can you help me? Oh, so you pulled the Holocaust survivor card, just like you play bridge. It was a strategy there. She said, so what? I go, well, look, you know, I'm going to explain it to you like this. A ship that it with proper maintenance can last 100 years. Only once do they launch that ship by breaking a bottle of champagne across the bow, Mm. right? Okay. I tell her, I'm not a bum off the street asking for a free college degree. I've already earned 41 credits, and I have very good marks. And it's it's clear cut. I'm going to get these last nine credits. The only question is now or in September. Now, you can simply take a piece of paper, submit my mark directly to the dean, write it up, and I'll run it over. And you have to make a decision. If you do that, that would be breaking the rules. So you have to ask yourself, when you're an older person and you look back at your life, what's going to make you feel better? The thought that you followed the rules and this crazy kid asks you to do something that's against the rules, but you just did it anyways to help him out and help out his parents and what have you? Or are you going to feel better at knowing that you followed the rules? Well, let me tell you something. The feeling you will get when you look back and say, man, I launched a ship. You will not be able to buy that feeling in the store for a million dollars. But today, you can have it for free. <laughs> she started crying. Oh, my god! She started crying. Now, I maybe delivered it a little better than I am now, 40 yeah. years later. Jeez. But... The tears were flowing out of her eyes. I hand her a Kleenex. She goes, what would you like? I said, how about an A? She goes, how about a C? I said, sold. (laughs) So that was six of the credits. I said, one last thing. Please sit by your phone for 15 minutes. She goes, why? I says, when I deliver this to the dean, he's not going to believe it. He's going to call you to verify it. And I need you to be here to answer the phone. I run it to the dean. He immediately grabs his phone and calls her, hmm. hangs up the phone and says, you know, Gordon, nice move. I don't know how you pull these things off, but all I can say is close, but no cigar. You're still three credits short. Right. So you had three to go. So you, did you pull another number just like that? Well, remember, I needed two miracles here. The second guy would never have gone for what I just did with the first guy. So I needed a whole different story for him. 
And again, I just turn to the heavens and say, please, Lord, we're so close. Just help me out because I'm clueless. You know, I, I think when you get in that sort of humble state where you're, you're pleading for help from the Lord and you have to acknowledge that you cannot do it on your own without his help, I think he answers you because he answered me. I don't know why. I had no idea what to do. And then just like that, an idea popped into my head out of nowhere. That's why I say it's like an incredible, you asked me, what was the original question? What was the greatest moment in my life? Yeah, the most brilliant days when you pulled out of your ass these nine credits. And I guess the end of the story is you, you were able to graduate and your parents never even knew that, uh, that you were behind. And that, right. uh, and that day there you know, was the most brilliant day of your life. That's, um, that's some cool stuff. So, okay, Norm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use the GoBundance app and I'm going to roll through this sucker and pick a random question and hit you with it. So hold on. Norm Gordon, what is your greatest regret? Well, you know, when I graduated, my mom was so proud. And all she wanted to do was take pictures of me. And, you know, like I felt like I had pulled off these two miracles and she had no idea. And, and you know, they never helped me with my homework or anything like that. And I was not the most pleasant person that day. Like I was happy to finally be over it. College was behind me now. But I would have liked to, to, to have been a more pleasant person on that day and made my mom even happier. Like, you know, they, they, were, they spent their life, their ambitions financially was to get me and my brother through university. And they pulled it off. And I was thinking of myself, how I pulled it off, instead of realizing that they had pulled it off. Wow, that's that's interesting. I think we should all think like that on with with our successes, with any success in life. If you said, you know, if you're starting to say, yeah, this is great, I I pulled it off. You say to yourself, who really pulled this off? You know, who am I grateful for that I wouldn't have been able to do this truly if it weren't for them? And at the end of the day, you weren't able to do that. You know, go to college if it weren't for all their struggles. You see, yes, because I didn't have to worry about tuition or anything like that. They paid for everything. And it wasn't easy. Like, my my mom would give me tuition in cash and small bills, and I had to go to the registrar and, to pay for each semester. You know, there's a difference between just writing a check and having to take the cash over to the registrar's office, especially when it's in small bills. Because in hindsight, I realized how hard it was for them to save that up. Yeah, right. To them, that payment that they just gave was six weeks or eight weeks of, of massive amounts of savings for them. Who you knows know? Who how knows? hard it right. was. But I didn't appreciate it. At that age, it was like it was all about me. And if you ask me what my regret was, my regret was not showing more appreciation to my parents at that stage of the game. Hmm. Well, thank you for being candid on that. I think we all can certainly learn a lot 
uh, from Norm's regret. There's, um, I think most regrets come from, well, quite frankly, from not showing appreciation, love, and spending time with those that we can no longer do so. What a deep way to uh, end this conversation, Norm. So listen, Norm, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. You have been an amazing guest. I am going to put all of Norm's information on the show notes for this page on GoBundance.com. And Norm, I wish you the best of luck and I look forward to uh, digging deep more into real estate investing and all things GoBundance related, my brother, in the, at the next event. Okay, cool. You know, if I would leave you with one thought, two of the books that made the greatest impact in my life in terms of turning it around from just getting by to like really skyrocketing up into the multi-millions one was a simple book on wealth accumulation called the richest man in babylon by george s clayson this is a book that's commonly available even for free in a pdf file on the internet and the second one also you'd have to buy it from amazon or somewhere because they don't sell it in the stores is called how to wake up the financial genius inside of you mm. That's the one you mentioned earlier. It's kind of a Tony Robbins took that uh, Waking the Giant Within You out of, uh, sounds like out of that book title. Well, it was. it's a small book, smallish. Uh, in fact, there's an updated version today called Next Step to Financial Genius. Mm. And the author is Mark Oliver Haraldson. I'm going to read that. And, you know, of course, I've read The Richest Man in Babylon, as have probably pretty much everybody uh, uh, listening to this. But I don't think... Unless I'm clueless that uh, many people have read that, because I know I have not heard of it. So, uh, guys, we'll put that on the show notes, too. Download yep. it today. And it's an interesting book. The guy who read it, I wrote. I went to meet the author after I made my first million. And the, the guy wrote an amazing book. He did an, a follow-up 20 years later. That's why it's called Next Step. It's the original book with notes put into it. Uh and the reason he disappeared is, would you believe it? There's people out there that bought the book, did not get rich, and then sued the guy because he said that, read this book and you will get rich. That's asinine. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know. Frivolous. <laughs> one thing he did say is that he sold 2 million copies of that book at 10 bucks. Okay. And one out of 100 people who read the book became a millionaire. So he felt that. He helped create 20,000 millionaires. Jeez. Now, why is it only one out of 100? Well, you know, that's the, the difference between the Shit. people who Most read people and don't do get past. They say the majority of people that buy a book don't get past page eight. Like 90-some percent. Yeah. Reading the book will not make you rich. You then have to take action. And he made one interesting comment early in the book is that at the end of every chapter, he put some blank pages for notes. And he said, those are the most important pages. Read a chapter and then let it simmer in your mind and come up with your own ideas because these ideas is what will make you the most amount of money. And that's what's worked for me. <laughs> like I, I came up with ideas, which we could do on another call, on 
when tenant pays the rent, you know, you make a certain amount of money. I made even more money, way more money when they didn't pay me the rent. Wow. That's awesome, Norm. Well, listen, Norm, okay. this, this has been great. I really appreciate you sharing so candidly. And listen, ha- have a great day, my brother. And uh, I hope you're wrong about Canadian real estate. I mean, I hope I'm wrong uh, and that it will continue to grow, grow, grow. Uh, you're still buying, right? Yes, we're buying. Like uh, We look at every deal on an individual basis. Right. I would not buy in Vancouver, but I would love oh, you to wouldn't. buy in Toronto. You think uh, no. Vancouver's about to... Because the price per unit is out of whack, okay? But in Toronto or Montreal, these are, or especially Hamilton or Ottawa, Mm. you see, it depends on the market. You got to look at what is the growth of the market and what is the price per unit. The price per unit's key because if it costs $200 a square foot to build something and you could buy it for $100, okay, it's used, but... You know, there's value. Like, this is probably a whole other call, but you have to be able to see deep into the numbers. Yeah. And and there's a lot of potential. Montreal has tremendous potential. And even Toronto, which is more expensive than Montreal, Toronto is in the League of New York at half the price. So if you could buy Manhattan for 50% of what it sells for today, would that be a good deal? Of course. Well, well, Toronto, well this Manhattan. I mean, Tor- if it were, if it was New York, of course. So you think Toronto, you think Montreal, Canada, is going to double in value over time? Yes, over time. Toronto okay. will too. Toronto's got nine million people. That's a New York. Toronto would be the second or third biggest city in all of the USA. Hmm. And and it's it's like the hub. All business, all the head offices in Canada move to Toronto. It, it's and yes, the prices are high, but they're still half. And the whole world is looking at Toronto. Why? Because New York has gotten to be ridiculously expensive. So capital from the whole world looks for places to go. Toronto is safe. It's like you know, it's a North American country. The, it's a magnet for capital. So even though prices are high today, there's a lot more room to go up. Vancouver, on the other hand, is what I call a speculative market. You don't want to get involved in speculative markets. Toronto's a value market. Wow. So, you know, anyways, that's a whole other call. Yeah, I love I it. No, I, 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 yeah, talk away. I love that stuff. I mean, that's that's fascinating and only time will tell. Well, listen, Norm, thanks so much for coming on and have a great day, my brother. Thank you. 